Today's passage is from 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 14 through to 27. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah in a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said, sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Thank you very much, Peter, for that reading. And uh, let me uh, add my welcome to Andy's. Uh, it's great to see you. Great to see you, particularly if you're new. Uh, or visiting, and uh, a very warm welcome especially to our older grub groups who are joining us uh, this morning. Um, it'd be great if you could keep that passage open, and you'll find an outline on the inside of the uh, notice sheet. And uh, I hope you don't mind, but I want to start this morning with a, a bit of a personal question. Um, don't shout out the answer, it's Personal, but do be honest. Here it is. Could you deliberately kill someone? Can you imagine yourself reaching a point when you intentionally plan 
to end someone's life? Could you plot the murder of another human being and carry it out? Can I ask you to think about this honestly? Do you have it in your heart to do it? Now, I must say, none of you look like murderers. (laughs) But are you a murderer at heart? I begin with that question because 2 Samuel 11 records the true story of David, king of Israel, taking an innocent stroll on his roof, as we've already been reminded, just having some fresh air. And then 13 verses later, he is cold-bloodedly plotting the murder of one of his most loyal servants. And this is David, who I've been calling the most godly man in history up to this point. A kind man, a generous man, a man who loves God and loves his neighbor. And this David gets out of bed, goes for a walk, And by the end of the chapter, he has become a murderer and is pretending nothing is wrong. It's quite a crash. It's quite a shock. It's a bit baffling for us, isn't it? And the question for us this morning is, if it can happen to David, can it also happen to you and I? If this capacity for evil resides in the heart of a man as godly and kind and good as David, then is it possible to find that same capacity for evil in your heart and mine? Are we actually like David or are we different to David? Are we cut from the same cloth? Are we part of the same family? Or are we somehow better than David? And if the answer is yes, we are the same, then what are we to do about it? To sharpen the question a little bit, I wonder if we should be starting a different kind of Me Too movement. Now, I'm not knocking the original Me Too movement for a moment. This movement asks us to identify with victims of abuse. And I don't want to minimize that at all. We do need to identify with victims of various kinds of violence and abuse. But I wonder if what we need even more seriously is a different kind of Me Too movement. Not about me identifying with the victims of crimes, helpful and true and right and proper, that might be in its place. But one that looks at somebody like David, who represents both the best and the worst of humanity, and says, in all honesty, Me Too. I have the capacity in my heart for that kind of evil. Deeply uncomfortable, though it may be to admit. Well, that's the question confronting us this morning. Are we better than David? Or are we like David? Can you look at David and honestly say, me too? That is the question. But before we get into it, I want to ask a second question, and this is more to do with what this is that we're doing. As we gather together and study the Bible, what are we actually looking at? What are these biblical narratives that we're looking at this morning? Because these Old Testament texts are absolutely unique, aren't they? There is nothing like them anywhere outside the Bible, and it's worth just having a moment just to kind of 
pause and think, what is it that we're doing as we look at them? What are these texts that we are taking so seriously? So let me give you three options. What do you think they are? Do you think these are stories, or do you think they are events, or do you think they're theology? See, some would say, well, they're stories, aren't they? They are brilliant narratives. We've been seeing that. They use the best storytelling technique of plot and character and dialogue and conflict and so on. They're stories. And other people say, no, that, that's, that's not right. They're not just stories. They are events. They are grounded in history. They're about real people and events and places. They're true. And then someone else might say, well, hold on. You're both missing something. This is theology. This is the Bible. They're neither stories nor events. They are truths about God. Well, what do you think? Are they stories? Are they events? Are they theology? Well, of course, the answer is yes, isn't it? All three are true at the same time. They are stories. They are carefully crafted narratives, but they are carefully crafted narratives of true events, of events that happen in real history with real people. Not only that, but they are events that teach us about God. And so let me put it on the screen. This is what we're reading. We are reading narratives of theologically significant events. We are reading about events in a carefully crafted story that is here to teach us about God, narratives of theologically significant events. Now, I mention that at this point because you'll notice that this passage contains really just one event, narrated multiple times. I wonder if you notice it as Peter read. In fact, it's impossible to miss, isn't it? That single key event at the heart of the story is the death of this man called Uriah the Hittite, the husband of the woman David slept with in verses 1 to 5. That central event, did you notice, is actually reported throughout the chapter five times. Have a look at it. It's reported by the narrator himself in verse 15 and 17. And then it's reported again on the lips of Joab as he sends the message back to David, verse 21. It's reported again on the lips of Joab's messenger as he takes the message that Joab told him to take to David in verse 24. Sort of a third-hand account, that one. And then it's repeated one final time by the narrator in verse 26, this time from the point of view of Uriah's wife. And so throughout the chapter, we get this kind of a drumbeat of repetition of one event, the death of one man, Put Uriah in the front line so he'll be struck down and die. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead. And Bible readers might recollect a similar drumbeat in Genesis 4 to 11. After the sin of the first man, Adam, which we are told brings a reign of death over to the whole world, We are told with each successive generation, and he died, and he died, and he died. And so we're looking at something here that is parallel to Genesis 4 to 11, when the reign of sin came over to the world, but this comes from David's sin, and it's focused down on the death of one man. And so by the end of the chapter, we know, don't we, what this chapter is about. It is a a narrative of one event, the death of Uriah the Hittite. There's no possibility of missing it. But what is the significance of that event? What is the theological significance? What does it teach us about God? Well, that question is not always easy for answer. In this case, 
We're given a huge help in verse 27. The very last line of the passage, we are told the significance of the event. Have a look at it, verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, let's look at the event then and their significance under the headings you'll see on the sheet. You may notice between verses 13 and 14 that the scene shifts from evening, verse 13, to morning, verse 14. And we're not told what happens in between, but we can easily imagine. In verse 13, you'll remember that David's second attempt to hide his adultery with Bathsheba has failed. And so he decides to get Uriah drunk so that Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife so the baby can be passed off as his own. But you'll also remember that Uriah refuses to do that. He refuses to go home. Instead, verse 13, sleeping among the servants. And so how are we to imagine the night passing between 13 and 14? Well, we can picture Uriah sleeping off his drink. And meanwhile, what is David doing? Well, I imagine he is pacing about the palace, thinking, plotting, working out how he can get control of the situation. And so we come to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. I think we can picture David now, can't we? Perhaps at first light, having had a night of wandering and plotting and pacing, he sits down, he's made a resolution within himself. He's going to make a final attempt to cover his sin. It will involve his unfailing troubleshooter, Joab, the commander of the army, over at the war front, happens to be the king's nephew, by the way. He sits down to write a letter, a very rare thing in the Old Testament. Most messengers were just transmitted orally. But this message must not be seen by anybody else. This message is for Joab's eyes only. And so David reaches for a piece of papyrus. He spreads it out in front of him. He picks up a pen or stylus. He finds some ink. He dips the pen or stylus in the ink. He writes the instructions. He waits a moment for the ink to dry. He rolls up the letter into a scroll. He finds a piece of clay. He seals the letter with a piece of clay, sealed from prying eyes. And then he sends it back with the man who, of course, believes he is taking instructions between the commander and the king, Uriah the Hittite. Well, it's now the letter is on its way in Uriah's hand that the narrator lets us know the content, verse 15. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. We need to remember this is plan C. Plan A was to subtly encourage Uriah to sleep with his wife, has failed. Plan B, to get Uriah drunk so he will sleep with his wife, has failed. This is now plan C, to send Uriah back to the front with precise instructions for how he himself will be conveniently killed. And most horrific of all, Uriah, this servant who is so trustworthy that David knows he will not dare to open the scroll, is to carry the warrant for his own execution. Are you horrified? Are you shocked at David's sin? At his callousness? That a lustful glance on the roof has led to a deliberate plot to murder 
an innocent man to protect himself. And we may ask, how has it come to this? The answer, of course, is through little steps. David didn't wake up that morning and decide to become a murderer the first morning. He was drawn in step by step. Each step bolstered by self-justification. Each step just convincing himself a little bit more that this was the right and only thing to do. Each step convincing his sinful heart that this was right in his eyes. A lustful glance, a one-night stand, a web of lies, and now murder. Well, I think if someone were to make a film of this, this would be a good scene. I think we'd have Uriah arriving. He would find Joab, he'd deliver the letter to Joab. And in my imaginative film, I think Joab would read the letter in his presence. He would make eye contact for a moment with the messenger. Joab's heart, I think, would sink slightly, and he would send him off with his orders. And so, verse 16, So, while Joab had the city under siege... He put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. You may have noticed that Joab doesn't carry out David's instructions exactly. He can see straight away that David's plan is not a good one. It's too obvious to put him in such an exposed position. It will reflect badly on his own military command and David's wisdom. And so he modifies the plan. But modifying the plan means that more people have got to be killed than Uriah alone. So verse 17, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Well, Uriah now has to report this to David. And the next section, 18 to 21, involves Joab preparing a messenger to take a very clever report back to David. And you may notice that the message takes twice as long as the event itself to report. And we need to look at this and see what it adds to the story. First, Joab knows that he has done something that looks like a mistake to the outsider. He has allowed some of his men to break that military rule and get too close to the wall of the besieged city. And so Joab faces embarrassment His own reputation as a commander is caught up in this. And he doesn't want to be blamed for this foolish mistake. And so what's he going to do? Well, in his report, he has to make sure David knows the action was necessary. But he also has to frame the report in such a way that only David will understand this. This is tricky, isn't it, to do? Well, look at how he does it. Verse 18. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Joab anticipates David's show of anger at this strategy to cover the plot and to play the role of the caring king. Perhaps David slips into a bit. Perhaps Joab slips into a kind of an imitation of David's voice at this point, raising his voice, getting furious as he berates the messenger for Joab's folly. And so Joab instructs the messenger. He says, "When David does this, when David sort of freaks out at what you've done, just say this: Your servant Uriah 
is also dead, and that will stop him in his tracks. Because Joab knows what David is thinking. He knows that no matter what the messenger says, no matter how many people have died, as long as Uriah has died, David will be happy. Secondly, in verse 21, in anticipation of David's response, Joab quotes a well-known military precedent from one of Israel's wars a hundred years earlier. Imagine him getting out the military textbook, page 23, about siege warfare. Here is the precedent. Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobasheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? In other words, Joab's reference to Abimelech underlines the foolishness of this strategy that David has forced him to pursue, but it does something else. And you can read this account in Judges 8 and 9. And it's an account that actually reminds us of another wicked ruler of God's people who murdered people to get what he wanted. And therefore, what this speech does is very cleverly give us a window into how low David has sunk. He not only wants Uriah dead, but he doesn't care how many people pay with their lives. And what this means is that he has become like the worst of Israel's leaders in the past. But the narrator wants us to hear those words again. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Verse 22 to 24. This time, if it hasn't already got complicated enough, we're going to hear the words again on the lips of the messenger taking his message from Joab to David. Except for this time, just as Joab altered his strategy, now the messenger alters the message slightly. Verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had told him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Again, this is very clever. The messenger is actually protecting himself. David has a reputation for killing people who provide bad messages sometimes. And he doesn't want to face David's eruption of anger, and so he slips in the important piece of information before he can. It's also that now we see what actually happened. Now we learn that the Israelite soldiers ended up so close to the danger beneath the city wall that it wasn't a woman with a millstone that killed them, it was a load of archers, just as Joab should have expected. We're not told how many people died in the attack, but there is an ancient tradition in the Greek Old Testament that says it was 18. 18 men died so that Uriah could die. And verse 24 comes the one piece of news David cares about. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. No doubt David let out an enormous sigh. Never mind about the other deaths, the other 18 widows, the other 18 families. Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David is safe. His sin has been concealed. His guilt hidden. His troubles are over. But the narrator wants us to hear the report one final time. Verse 25 to 27. 
And the story concludes with what appears to be a short wrapping up of matters from David's point of view. David sends a message back to Joab, verse 25. And then we're told that Bathsheba mourns for her husband, verse 26. After the required time of mourning, verse 27, David literally sends for Uriah. The last time that word is used of David in this part of the book, he marries her. She gives birth to a son. She conceives. And David has won. He's exercised his royal power. He's manipulated and deceived everybody around him. Everybody's been taken in. Uriah, Joab, the messengers, it's all worked to cover his adultery with Bathsheba. Yes, there have been casualties. A woman has been widowed, verse 26 makes clear, and others. But David and his reputation is safe. The matter is closed. Except for one thing that has been forgotten. God has been forgotten. And for the whole of the chapter, there has been no mention of the Lord. David has been living as if God is not there. But the chapter ends with that final statement in verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so let's now turn in the light of that to the significance of these events for David, for the kingdom, and for us. Firstly, what is the significance of this for David? Well, look at his response to Joab in verse 25. It's deeply revealing. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Again, if I were shooting this as a film, I, I don't know about you, I think I'd have David sort of munching an apple while he says this, or maybe you know, quaffing a glass of wine, not particularly looking at the messenger. Never mind, these, these things happen, it's just war. Everybody's got to die sometime. It seems perfectly acceptable to David that several innocent men, including Uriah, should pay with their lives for his sin. But it's even worse than that. Unfortunately, our translation in verse 25 and 27 hides an important parallel phrase. Don't let this upset you is a too weak translation. Let me put on the screen what David literally says. He says, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. And this is parallel exactly with the statement in verse 27, which says, but the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Can you see how significant that is? By setting these two things in parallel, the narrator is showing us what is really going on in this chapter. The real issue is that David's perception of good and evil is different to God's. There is what is evil in David's eyes, and there is what is evil in God's eyes, and the two are no longer the same, and that is a problem. See, think about where we are in the book. David's reign looked good at first. He was God's choice of king. He was different to Saul. But now we see that actually David is like Saul and he is unlike God. God and David are in different pages when it comes to good and evil. 
David has somehow ended up constructing his own moral framework so he can steal another man's wife and then kill the other man and not even think it is an evil thing. But God thinks differently. See, how has this happened? Well, it's happened in small steps, as I said. If you'd told David at the beginning he would be a cold-blooded murderer by the end, he would have been incensed, as we'll see next week. And yet by the end, this is what he has done. He has pushed through his conscience. He has ignored the word of God in his ears. He's justified himself. He's deceived himself. So somehow he has gone from being someone who thinks like God to someone who thinks differently to God. His entire perception of good and evil has swung until it's completely opposed to God. This has happened. As Colin so profoundly says, all of a sudden, snap. And you notice how this is emphasized by the way the narrator speaks of Bathsheba. Doesn't use her name. Doesn't call her the wife of David, but he insists on calling her Uriah's wife and Uriah her husband. This is how the narrator wants us to regard her because this is how God sees her. And there's nothing David can do to change that. There is a right and wrong in this world, and it is God's to decide, not the king of Israel. David has become not just a murderer, but he's become the moral arbiter of his own world. The very essence of sin, according to Genesis 3. He has reached the point where he can no longer see sin as sin, where he calls evil good and good evil, where he cannot discern what is right and wrong, where he is blind. He is unable to do the very thing the king of Israel was supposed to do, which is understand and obey the law of God. Which means, secondly, we need to see the significance for the kingdom of God. I wonder if any of you here can remember the verse we learned last time we're in the book of 2 Samuel. It's part of a song David sings right at the end in chapter 23, and it's on the screen. He says, The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Here is a promise of where God is taking his world. It's a promise to remake the world as it was before, as fresh and pristine and perfect as the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine a world like that? No more abuse of men, of women by men, No more cancer. No more animals going extinct in the rainforests. No more people traffickers. No more adultery or divorce or theft or lies. No more broken hearts. No more pain. No more tears. No more death. And isn't that the world we all want deep down? And isn't that the kingdom that God promised David? The kingdom that he promised would come from one of his own descendants in chapter 7. 
But now we can see that David is not that king. He is not the hero that we're looking for to sort out our world. And in fact, it will become apparent before too long that in chapter 10, we've reached the high point of David's life. Soon we will see this reign of death unravel. His baby will die. His daughter will be raped by her half-brother who will be murdered by another son who will rebel against David. And so it will go on in a decade of division and destruction and chaos and cruelty. And as we watch the sin and consequences of David's sin unfold and unravel through the nation, through his family, through the whole history of the Bible, we're seeing that the very best human being that has ever ruled in this world, in the end rules over a reign of death because he is a sinner. As David himself says in Psalm 51, as he looks back on this event, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet here is the best of the best. The best human ruler. Perhaps only bettered by Solomon, his son. And so whenever human rulers reign, from the time of Adam to the present day, they are ruling with that remorseless drumbeat, and he died, and he died, and he died. And so as we see David reveal his true colors, we know who we're looking for. We're looking for one whose view of good and evil align with God. For one who never pushes past his conscience to get his way. Can you imagine a man like that? One who is fully human, who has come from the family of David. But whose view of good and evil aligns perfectly with God's. What a man he would be. Well, in 2 Samuel 11, we read that God was not pleased with David. But in Mark 1.11, we hear a voice come from heaven. As a man called Jesus is coming out of the river Jordan, having been baptized, and the voice says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And so here is the one who will bring that rule of righteousness, who will rule in the fear of God. And his reign will be like the morning sunrise on a cloudless morning. The great surprise, though, is how the rain comes. That the reign of that righteous ruler is actually revealed paradoxically at the moment of his own murder. The perfect sinless one is lifted onto a Roman cross to gather to himself all the collective murderous hatred of humanity. It is aimed at him. It's absorbed by him so he can bring the reign of death to an end. As he dies, death dies and sinners can live. And so finally then, what is the significance for us? Well, I asked at the start 
Could you deliberately murder someone? Can you look at David and say, honestly, me too? If not, I want to respectfully say that the Bible says you are mistaken. History says you are mistaken. Jesus says you are mistaken. There's a moment, for example, in John 8, where Jesus is talking to a crowd of people. And he says, you're determined to kill me. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now I'm here. But you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. In other words, come to the foot of the cross and see if you can claim that you're better than David. We are no better than David. We're cut from the same cloth. We're part of the same family. We reign this world as sons of Adam, just as he did. Whenever we rule, we bring others under the rule of death and we suffer under the reign of death ourselves. But as long as we can acknowledge this, Death need not be our destiny because the grace of God is even greater than David's failure. And if we turn to Christ who absorbed all the murderous hatred of all of humanity, then we may be forgiven and live at last under the reign of life. And so can I ask you to look at Romans 17, which is on the sheet at the bottom, which puts it like this. For if by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Well, what do you think? Could you look at David and say, me too? Well, if you can, look at Jesus and move from the reign of death to the reign of life. Let's pray that we'll do that now. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we've been reading this story of human sin and destruction, of adultery, lies and murder, we have actually been following your story of how you will bring about your purposes for this world. Thank you that the promise of the perfect kingdom that you made to David did not depend on him or his righteousness or ours, but on your beloved son, living a sinless life, dying death in our place, and rising to offer forgiveness and bring us into your eternal kingdom. 
So we ask now that you'd forgive us and help us to put our hope in Jesus, who alone atones for sin, who alone reverses the chaos of a fallen world, and who alone reigns in righteousness forever. In his name we pray. Amen.